I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Today, it's a very special episode of I Was There Too, the show where I normally speak to people who played a small but significant role in one of the great scenes of cinema history. But this episode, the guest, venerable star of stage and screen, Piper Laurie, is really the there in I Was There Too. So that's what we'll call it. I was the there in I Was There Too, which is not an unwieldy title, befitting a great actress of our time. But to get to the meat of the matter, when I was approached by listener Tim Grieving in an email saying that he might be able to get Piper Laurie on this show, I thought, well, that doesn't even fit with the concept of this podcast. But what are you going to do? Turn Piper Laurie away? No, you're going to tailor your podcast to fit. This marks one of the few times where I was actually very nervous to interview the guest. She played Carrie's mom in the film Carrie. She co-starred with Paul Newman and George C. Scott as Sarah Packard in The Hustler. I'm nervous now just talking about it. But all my nerves were immediately set to rest when she came in the studio. She was a wonderful woman in a wonderful interview. And I think this is one of my favorite episodes in a long time. Also, I implore you to stick around for the second half of this podcast where I talk to Amanda Lund and a special talent, I think, that she has to enhance your listening enjoyment to certain songs. I'll just leave it as a tease for that. But do stick around. I think you'll find it no doubt worth your time. So thank you especially for listening to this episode. Tell your friends this is a good one to bring them in on, even though it doesn't represent what I normally do on this podcast. But I think they'll get the point. And now let's get to it. The films, Carrie and The Hustler, The Years, 1976 and 1961, The Roles, Margaret White and Sarah Packard, The Actress, Piper Laurie. Well, Piper Laurie, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to have you here. I want to talk a little bit about Carrie, The Hustler, your other work, and your fantastic autobiography. Let's uh, start with Carrie. I'm so fascinated by the fact that you took Carrie to be more of a comedy than anything else originally, and you seem to be relishing in the melodrama of it all so wonderfully. 
Sissy Spacek was reportedly very serious in her immersion in the role. What was the dynamic between you two where you were having so much fun with the role and she was taking it seriously? Well, I think it was out of desperation. I, I hated the script. <laughs> I thought it was really stupid. And my ex-husband said, well, you know, Brian De Palma has a comedic approach to everything he does. And I thought, oh, that's, that's the secret. This is supposed to be a satire. So on the basis of that, I took the train from Woodstock into New York, and I met with Brian, and who struck me as a lovely, like a young rabbi. <laughs> and, and we got along nicely, and I took the train back to Woodstock, and by then I heard that he wanted me in the movie. And so I tr- was trying to find a way to, to do it. And I, I was supposed to report in a month or so in L.A. to rehearse, and I, I started inventing things to, to be funny, a lot of <laughs> physical business. Uh, one scene where she's a, Margaret's supposed to uh, abuse herself, tear her clothes, and I thought, well, the, make the, the uh, wardrobe person's not going to put up with that, having a new dress for every take. <laughs> so um, I pulled myself across the room by my hair in what I thought was a really broad, funny way. And I did it twice in a rehearsal in Brian's apartment. And he said, Piper, you, you can't do that. You're going to get a laugh. And I so I was so shocked. And I, 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 and he was serious. This was your first moment realizing that this was not yes, entirely common. Yes. Yeah. So I, I was too embarrassed <laughs> to say, oh, I didn't understand. So I just tried to just tip over the line a little bit. And uh, I om- I did pretty much the same thing, but with a different intention. It was I sort of went deeper into the em- true emotion of the moment. Yeah, but you- I still pulled my hair <laughs> across the room with it. It's easy to see your approach on the character, especially in the scene where you throw coffee in Carrie's face. Your comic timing there is, is almost precision, and her non acknowledgement of it feels <laughs> like a heightened. Yep. Comedy and it, it uh, I can easily see when I was reading your or listening to the audiobook of Learning to Live Out Loud, it made more sense to me of that movie in, in your eyes than the way that I think it was intended. Well, I I thought that the character was kind of cliche from the beginning, um, to the way she wore her hair and a tight bun. And I, I, could, I was just looking for things that were interesting to me. And also, uh, after I went back back to uh, Woodstock, the first thing I did, I went into the city and I saw the last thing Brian had done, which was Phantom of the Paradise, which was so theatrical. It was so big and free, and I thought, oh, this is, that's what he likes and that's what I'll do. And it seemed appropriate <laughs> for the character. So I wasn't afraid. And he never stopped me. That was the great thing. He never made me feel inhibited. Occasionally, I would have to sort of prep him about the direction I was going to go in, like in the the last scene when I get killed and and um, and I kill her. I um, wanted to be sure he didn't interrupt me because then I would have really gotten all um, tight and uh, inhibited about it. So I sort of we we met on the street outside the soundstage just before. Uh, we were to shoot the scene, and I said, I have, I have a thing I'd like to try for the scene, that when she's killed, when she's dying, um, 
that this is not agony or pain for her, but it's, it's ecstasy. This is what, you know, the death of her daughter and giving herself to Christ and herself. That was, you know, the ultimate. A release and of so it would be ecstasy. So right. that's why I played it so broadly <laughs> and in another direction. He seemed to have really sought you out for you to do what you wanted to do in the first place because you write in your book that when you met with him initially, you thought you might have to explain your body of work to him, but in fact, he was explaining himself to you. I was shocked because <laughs> I remember getting myself ready to get onto the train to go into the city. I was very nervous, like like I this was the first time, and it, it felt like the first time, and it was, I hadn't done a movie in 15 years. I was perfectly happy being a, a stone carver and a mother and a baker, and and um, so when I was invited to to read the script and then come in to meet him, I thought, this might be fun to act again. <laughs> you um, even write, one of my favorite details of the book is that the film critic Pauline Kael advised you on how to wear your hair in the time of, of the day, right? Uh, I Like a lot of us, we used to straighten our hair. But when I was living in the country, I didn't bother. I let it be curly and wild. And, and, uh, and one day she did say... Um, Piper, don't worry about that. You know, straighten your hair. When I, which I would do if if I had to look nice. And uh, she said, "Don't. Oh, it's the style now." You know. So uh, that's how I was wearing it for rehearsals. And um, Jack, the set designer, and Sissy Spacek's husband, uh, came to rehearsal one afternoon when we were in Brian's apartment, and I happened to be standing in the an archway in his living room, and Jack said, "Piper, how are you going to wear your hair?" And then I was dreading it, you know, he was going to bring up the bun thing. And um, so I said, I don't know, I don't know. He said, well, it looks great like that. And he's called Brian over, he said, look, look, look at that. You know, under the archway and Piper's wild hair. So that's how, how it, it came to be. It was lovely for me. I didn't have to do anything, <laughs> you know, worry, worry about. But, you know, they had a great crew on that show. The makeup person who did me... His name was uh, Zoltan. 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 Was it a one-word name or just like a like a wizard? That's what he called himself. Zoltan. Yes, <laughs> He's yes. a magician. I looked him up recently, and he does have a lot of other names, but <laughs> that's that's what he was using. And he was from Bulgaria, one of those countries, and it was fascinating. He was so good, go so good at what he did. And he did very little. But he told me about his training in Europe, how they they had to go, they were locked in a room one day, each of them alone, and had to make a, a wig, a hair lace wig from scratch, and come out at the end of the day with a finished wig, which was, if you know any, if you've ever seen a real hair lace sure. wig, a full one, it's incredible that they did that. But they, they were, were locked in really a room? trained. Yeah. Wow, like a rite of passage kind of thing? Yeah, wow. yeah. Zoltan, huh? So what made you decide after 15 years, the, the last film you had done, which you were nominated for Academy Award, was The Hustler. After 15 years, what about Carrie made you want to come back into the industry? It really happened before that. I was uh, in class at the Art Students League carving a piece of stone, Vermont marble, <laughs> and it was so pleasurable for me. I loved the whole process, and I had great patience, and it took me seven months to do my first piece, and I didn't use power tools or anything. And um, I thought, oh, gosh, I'm so happy. And it wouldn't be one—it might be nice to go to the theater tonight and, and, and 
act in a play. Uh, it just the feeling came that yeah. I wanted to be creative in, in other ways as well. And so I sort of sent that out into the atmosphere and somebody heard it. <laughs> Actually, the person who heard it was uh, an old, old friend, Marsha Nassiter, who I didn't realize was a, a movie executive. I had known her through Pauline Kale, and we had Chinese dinners and I went to a, an auction with her one afternoon. But I didn't, I didn't know what she did. She was just a nice, fun lady. And so four or five years later, when uh, she was working at United Artists, she, and they had run out of ideas for Carrie's mother, she uh, mentioned my name to Brian De Palma. He said, oh, she's too young. And I just saw her in The Hustler. He said, Brian, that was 15 years ago. <laughs> and in so black and on white. on the basis of that, I was brought in. But they found my old agent, who I hadn't spoken to in 15 years. And, and she sent, she said, there's a script here uh, that I want to send to you. Excuse me. And I said, fine. Um, so I read it, and as I told you, I hated it. <laughs> and um, But then when, my, when Joe, my husband, told me that there was a way, an approach. I thought, well, it might be fun. And that was the wonderful thing about it. It was the first time in my life I'd entered a, a work situation with, um, without fear. And I think that made all the difference in the world. Uh, it was really playtime for me, being the like a child getting to play a, the mean person. Um, and so I, it was a great time. You write in your book on that subject about the anxiety you would often have when approaching a role prior to Carrie. And I'm wondering what compelled you to go forward with each each time facing that kind of fear and anxiety? I think it was desperation. <laughs> it was, um, I had found at last a, a way to break out of my solitude, my silence. I literally spoke to no one when I was growing up except my parents and my sister. I should um, mention that you accompanied your sister to a sanitarium in California for yeah, a few Yeah, we were years. there for three years from the time I was almost six to nine. And that didn't help the situation. I had not become any more verbal. <laughs> but accidentally, because my mother um, thought it would help me to go to elocution school uh, on Saturdays, my best girlfriend across the street, my only girlfriend across the street, um, would go to this Guy Bates uh, Academy, and uh, she was studying the harp. And my mother found out that they gave elocution lessons, and she thought that would help my shyness. And so I began to go on Saturdays, and I learned to recite two monologues, a comedy one and a dramatic one. And I used to practice... Um, for my parents' company, I'd stand behind the couch and uh, do my little monologue. And that was those were my audiences. And, and one day in uh, sixth grade, they said that we had to um, memorize something and recite it in front of the class. So I thought, oh, good, I know something by heart. So, I'll, so I decided to do my comedy monologue, which was called The Old Maid. And I played a... a elderly woman on a shipboard who talks about all of her old boyfriends. <laughs> and so I started the piece, and I, and I was doing a, a very bad accent as one of the first suitors. 
And um, the audience, the kids in the classroom just sort of started howling and stomping their feet. And they were so excited. And the, the, uh, the teacher said, quiet, quiet. <laughs> and, and every time I'd speak, they'd holler again. Anyway, they, I got through the whole thing, which I don't know, ran 10, 15 minutes. And I was just shaking. I was just couldn't believe what that I was getting a response like that from people. And I got back to my seat, and I just realized. You know, I didn't realize, but the, the fact was, my life had changed. Uh-huh. And um, I found that by using other people's words. And you've heard this story before. A lot of actors are that way. They hide behind another character and somehow are able to express themselves. Is this the same monologue that you uh, sent into President Roosevelt? That story in the book about your mother sending in a recording of of you doing a monologue for the administration to use if they needed. Yes. So wonderful. Oh, God. (laughs) I can't recommend this book enough, honestly. It's filled with wonderful little stories like that. And that was just something you thought your mother thought might uh, help the administration if they could bring your talents on board. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Getting back to Carrie really quickly, and then we'll talk about the hustler a little bit. Um, lines like your dirty pillows and things like that. What was your take on those lines? I mean, how could you do that? Anything other than a comedy, right? Well, I guess I knew it would be dangerous to think of it as the audience probably would think of it. So I just took a very direct, uh, serious approach to it. That, And the same for the fact that she's wearing a, a lovely pink dress and the line is... Uh, I knew it red. I knew it would be red <laughs> in that same scene. The costumer suddenly decided not to make a red dress as was expected and made the pink dress. And Brian said, well, Sissy's not going to be wearing a red dress, so you better change the line. I said, no, no, I think it's fine. I mean, she sees it as red. <laughs> and so that's what I did. And, and with the dirty pills, I just... Took it as seriously as I could. I mean, there were her breasts. That, I don't know if they were dirty, but they were. They, it, I, I just she saw it as um, as something ugly. Yeah. And how was it shooting that death scene? That seemed like it was an involved process. Oh yes, it was. It took a long time. Technically, I mean, today they would do it differently, but this was. They did it for real, and the prop man strung a long piece of wire attached to a block underneath my nightgown uh, that was attached to a steel vest that I was wearing. And the wire came through a hole in my nightgown. It stretched across the set about 15 feet, and the prop man would separately put each little kitchen implement, and it would very slowly bump. Across the room until it finally hit me, and I'd hold still. And then when it would finally hit me, I would react and make a sound and look like I was in had been attacked. Uh, it, it it was so preposterous, it was so silly to me that it was so hard to not keep from laughing. <laughs> that was the big challenge, is to looked like I was serious about the whole thing and then explode when it finally hit me. And I don't know how many t- instruments, uh, kitchen implements they had, but for each one it was that way and it took forever, you know, for them to 
hook up the instrument and but when it was over, each each after they cut and they take print, then I would just be able to howl with laughter. <laughs> was the tone on the set very serious, or were they laughing with you once it was a cut? No, I think they were serious. <laughs> yeah, not I don't know. No, yeah, I think they were serious. But I was trying to decide whether it was out of respect for uh, we were working hard or. or mm, I don't know, but I think I was the only one I was playing. Let's talk about The Hustler for a bit. I want to talk about how you describe in your book um, Paul Newman and George C. Scott and how different it seems that their working style was. You call Paul Newman a blinding force of his unearthly blue eyes, and two weeks passed before you could do your work and just see a man. And you described George C. Scott as a large, dangerous snake about to strike. <laughs> God. <laughs> so did that affect your approach to them, scene to scene, and how you dealt with them as a, both a character and an actress? Well, with George C. Scott, I knew that I should treasure those feelings that I had, that they would, they would be useful it to me. It played into your uh, dynamic of your yes, characters. Yes, yes. And we had met a year before. We were in a show together, a live television show of Winterset. And he played Troc, the, the gangster. And he would arrive and it was a live show. We had a you know two or three week rehearsal period. <clears throat> uh, he'd arrive all beaten up with bruises and bandages and a little blood. And we the gossip was that he had beaten up somebody in a bar. I was afraid of him. <laughs> Maybe I was taking my role of Mary Omni seriously. But, I would be afraid of him But too. I never spoke to him, and we never had an occasion to work together. But we were in the same rehearsal hall all day long for weeks. And so when um, Robert Rossum wanted to cast George in the part in The Hustler, he asked me, knowing that we had worked together, and knowing that George had a terrible reputation, difficult, he asked me if I would come along with him when we picked him up at the theater to take him out for a drink one night. And it was to be his first meeting with George. So I thought, oh, dear, I'm not going to tell Robert, you know, that how I felt about him, that, he was, that we'd never spoken a word to each other. So well, we picked him up at the theater. He was playing in a, a play called The Wall, I believe, and he was very powerful, and we went backstage and introduced ourselves. And it was the first time I'd ever, I said, how do you do, which was the first time I ever spoke to him. And then he said, well, I'll meet you around the corner at the so-and-so cafe. And so we met him there, and we sat opposite each other. Bob Rossum was next to me, and George was opposite. And, the, and I didn't say one word. Uh, they talked, and... Bob liked him very much, and he, of course, was cast during the, the actual shoot, except for the actual scenes where we had lines. Again, I never spoke to him. I was really afraid of him. <laughs> you know, I think I, if if the circumstances had been different in the movie, maybe I would have made an effort to get over it, yeah. which I didn't do for maybe 30 years, and then... I finally met him for real. I was invited to dinner at his house. And he was so warm and so <laughs> darling. And he grabbed me and he threw me into the air. He said, Rosie, it's so 
good to see you. And and then after that, we worked together three or four times, I think in series. And, and I actually had the honor of being in the last show he did. The famous scene in The Hustler where he whispers into your ear and the audience doesn't hear what he says. It's um, sort of well known that he whispered something inaudible so that you would use your imagination. That's what he says. Right. It, you, uh, it took me 30 years to ask him what he actually was saying because for every take, there were only two or three takes. All I could hear was something like, ish, 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 ish. <laughs> and he was right. And he, he couldn't have said anything that could be as uh, useful to me as what I could imagine myself. It's funny that that story is written a few different places, including your book, but what I can't seem to find is what did you use in your imagination to set you off because your character sort of goes Oh, gosh. Do you remember? I don't remember. I don't remember. Whatever it was, it was something that relating to my life at the time. Um, When you saw the film for the first time, you were surprised with how different it was from what you imagined. And that's 15 years later, you're finally able to appreciate it on its own. Why do you think it took so long? Was it just being able to see it outside of your own character's purview? That's certainly part of it. When I read the script, it was an unusual experience because I had never been captured uh, so totally by the, the words on the page. I didn't really see myself. Well, I didn't, my character doesn't come into the script for 30 or 40 pages, but... I was so involved in the script. It was so beautifully written and so clean. And so when I came to my character and Paul's character, I had this, I wasn't thinking of it as an actress. I was just seeing it in my imagination like <laughs> like it was already done yeah. on the screen. And I just saw these people. So when we actually started to work, I didn't, I had no template for what to do. I was just working as an actor and using what Paul gave me. But somehow I was expecting my original concept when I saw the movie for the first time. I'd lost track of you know, what we were doing and that it was different. So I, it was really that I expected something different. And it took me a long time. And I, every time I see it, and I've seen it recently on a big screen, which makes a big difference. Yeah. I'm very touched. I don't see myself there anymore. I'm so touched by Paul and everyone in it. It's just, um, it's a beautiful, perfect movie, I think. It's really, really wonderful. Your working relationship with Paul Newman, like you said, it took you about two weeks to just get past the eyes. Yes. And then once you did, did you find it pretty easy and welcoming? Yes, yes. He was a very... Self-effacing, but I mean, genuinely modest guy who didn't really think he was good, and was worked so hard, tried so hard to be as good as he could be, very decent. That's so nice to hear. Your autobiography, "Learning to Live Out Loud," early on in the book, you mentioned an old Eastern European curse. It goes, "Don't brag, or something bad will happen." <laughs> and it seems like that carries over into your writing. Your autobiography is—it's a rare case of no. It's not full of self-congratulations or self-pitying, but you're so objective and honest in it. And I wondered if that comes from awareness of that saying in your family or that curse, but it's really I refreshing. Don't know. I No one has ever said that to me before. Um, I thought I bragged a lot. I, I don't I know mean, how I, you <laughs> managed to do it so 
I, I've read many autobiographies and it always feels like self-congratulatory and name dropping and yours feels very honest and humble. And it, I, I really enjoy that element of it. Well, thank you. But did you not see the note that I put in there from Gregory Peck? Well, I have the audiobook version. <laughs> so unless it's oh, Gregory oh, oh, Peck oh, oh. doing, I, too bad he okay. wasn't around to do the foreword. Well, I don't remember whether I tried to do his voice or not. I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> I haven't heard that part. And, That's and too Walter Matthau, too. I included a note from him. Too. Oh, well, yes. I'll have to pick up the yeah. printed version. I love some of the early stories, too, about how when you would do a performance with your sister when you were young and your mother would give you a she would pull a bottle of wine and honey and water out of her purse and have you guys take a swig before yes. you performed. Yes. How did that help you or hinder you in your performance? I have no idea. I didn't, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I, I felt that, you know, the wine went right to my knees. I was aware, aware of that. But I enjoyed doing those little skits that we did during the war and, and um, singing and dancing. We went to classes taught by third-rate teachers, and we sang. And one of our most popular numbers was called When It's Sweet Onion Time in Bermuda. <laughs> um, and then in the second chorus, I'd come out with a little basket with scallions and toss them to the audience, and we were a great hit. Um, we used to do that in hospitals to, so, for soldiers and old folks' homes. We went to the Jewish home for the aged when it was still in Boyle Heights many, many years ago. It was a good experience for me. And my mother's motivation really was because she thought service was a, a real and important thing. I mean, this wasn't advancing our careers, but, but she thought it was important to be useful. Well, I can't thank you enough. I, now, I really want to recommend this book to people. You have such a wonderful way of telling your history and the stories about the work that you've done. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, oh, Miss Laurie. That makes me feel good. Thank you. That's thank my you. pleasure. It's really my pleasure to have you on. Thanks. Thanks. And I want to say thank you to Tim Grieving, who was able to facilitate this interview. Tim, thank you so much. You're mighty welcome. Glad <laughs> to play uh, Yenta for you guys. <laughs> you are my matchmaker. That's a reminder, if you connect me with a guest successfully for this show, you can come sit in on the interview like you did today, Tim. And I can vouch for how truly amazing the experience is. Thank you, Tim. You're welcome. Thank you once again to the wonderful Piper Laurie. That was a treat for me. And to Tim Grieving for making that happen and to her manager, Rich Fall. Do check out her audiobook uh, or paper book, but it's nice to hear her tell the stories. It's a wonderful read. And now we bring you to the second half of the show, which I hope you will really enjoy. And this is an interview? No? Experience with Amanda Lund, my live-in bunkmate and fiancé, who has her own unique way of enhancing songs, and specifically theme songs to movies, as evidenced in a return to the classic I Was There Too segment. I Was There Tune. Well, I'm sitting here with the two ladies in my life, Amanda Lund and Margot the Fat Guy. Now, uh, I'm going to put Margot down. Margot, do you want to say anything? Amanda, you have this wonderful thing that I want to celebrate. You live in a world where you create your own lyrics to songs, and I don't know if they're on purpose or just for fun, and frankly, I don't want to know. <laughs> I just want to celebrate it. First okay. of all, how are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. 
Now, the way this works is um, Amanda will sing a song, and I think you're earnestly trying to sing along with a song, say, on the radio, but you may not know the lyrics, but you might not even know that you don't know the lyrics. You just sing along, and they don't line up, but it's wonderful sometimes what happens. I think it's a mixture of things. I think I'm so used to singing alone in the car that it doesn't matter. It's neither here nor there whether the lyrics are correct or not. Um, Sometimes I think I'm singing them right. Sometimes I'm not even thinking about it. (laughs) I want to give you an example of my favorite one of all time. (laughs) And the reason that this is applicable to this podcast, we'll do some movie theme songs. But we were on a road trip and no surprise, I had some James Bond songs on the radio. And it was the theme song from Octopussy, Rita Coolidge's All Time High. And it goes like this. The real version goes like this. You're an all time high. We'll take on the world and win. (laughs) But you said... You're an all time high. Can't take my hotel away. (laughs) So the way this is going to work is I will sing poorly one or two lines from a song. We'll start with James Bond theme songs, and then I will point to you when it is your turn to take it away. Okay. You up for this? Yeah. I really appreciate this, and I know the listeners appreciate this. (laughs) My pleasure. Goldfinger. He's got a gun, the man with the Midas gun. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody does it better than you and me in bed. (laughs) What does it matter to you when you got a job to do, you got to do it well. You gotta know that it's a 10 (laughs) o'clock. I feel bad I'm making myself laugh. (laughs) You gotta know that it's a 10 o'clock? A 10 o'clock. What? A 10 10 o'clock. Oh, it's at 10 o'clock? That's when you gotta give the other man a hand? You gotta know that it's a 10 o'clock. What's a 10 (laughs) o'clock? I don't know. Well, I need to decipher some of Well, you have to ask the songwriter. Oh, okay. Skyfall is where we start. Never stopping, never heart. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to move on to some other famous theme songs from other movies, okay? Okay. You ready for this? Okay. How do you feel your work has gone so far? It's not my best work. I haven't warmed my voice up yet because it's so early. (laughs) But is your best work your worst work and vice versa? In a way. No, because sometimes I... um, like if I'm singing something, I'll come up with a lyric that is better than the original. Like, can't take my hotel yeah. away? <laughs> what do you think the, the narrator in that song is saying when she's saying, we're an all-time high, like no one will beat us, and you can't take my hotel away? Well, she's not going to give up all of herself for her boyfriend. Do, so it's a metaphor? She doesn't literally own a hotel? Or is it a monopoly? No, she literally thing? owns a hotel. But... She's not going to pack up her business and just live with a man. Yeah, she's going to keep her hotel. Like Octopussy in a way. She kept her Indian like Palace Island. Yeah. <laughs> okay, ready? Yeah. Stumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen. Pour myself a cup of ambition. I got no one to say you can't do it today. <laughs> <laughs> 
You can't tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man, no time to talk. Well, I sometimes sing that I love to dance, but I dance right now because I got my hands. (laughs) Did I ever tell you you're my hero? The one that I call when I'm alone. (laughs) Moon River. Far across the land, my strawberry little hands. (laughs) I have. Time out. Far across the land works perfectly. Might as well be in the song. My strawberry little hand. In your mind. I know I know you don't plan these, but in your mind now, what is that? Oh, um that's it's their little that they call their little child. Their strawberry little hand? Yeah. Why do they call it? Because that? she's always picking um fruits from the garden and her hands Aww. are sticky. Oh, that's sweet. Isn't it? Okay. Old Man River, that old man river, he keeps on digging to make that river. We all keep digging, we all keep... <laughs> Please don't stop. I didn't realize you had such a like rich baritone. I have a, a really deep... Singing voice. Go as deep as you can with that. Okay. Try it again. That's like my comfort zone is to sing deep. That old man river, he keeps on digging. <laughs> <laughs> Why is he digging in the river? He's digging the river. Oh, okay. Um, isn't my voice good? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Start spreading the news. Keep. Coming the blues. <laughs> I don't actually know how that, that one goes. Good. Yeah. All right. Would you like to swing on a star? Um. Would you like to hop in my car? <laughs> Take a lap around the park, cause it's Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can already tell you this is going to be a recurring segment. This is. Oh God. Summertime and the living's easy. Daddy's on the microphone with rum MC. <laughs> can't take away the rum from enough. the LBC. I'm from the LBC, baby. You can't get that one past me. That's true. <laughs> okay. Raindrops and roses and chocolate <laughs> You're posies. singing that wrong. I know. I don't know that one. Hold on. Raindrops on roses. And chocolate posies. This is one of my all-time favorites. And even if you aren't as familiar with it, just go for it. Okay. When you get caught between the moon and New York City. Did you know that the Sean Sheila kept your tail? <laughs> Sham Sheila? <laughs> what is a Sham Sheila? I don't know. That one was gibberish. But w- and now you you got to... <laughs> okay, okay. What's a Sham Sheila? It was... But w- do you remember the time Sham Sheila? Like Sham is slang for pal. In your world or real life? I don't know in that song. Oh, when your pal Sheila kept your tail? Yeah. Why did Sheila keep your tail? Well, that meant she emasculated him. Oh, man. (laughs) Can't take her hotel away. (laughs) Foot loose, cut loose, put on your Sunday shoes. Charlene, 
So mean. Pick up your two-time teen. <laughs> okay, what's a two-time teen? Um, that's her two-timing um, little bro- teen brother. Two-timing her- his sister? No, he's just a two-timer. Oh, okay. Oh, God. Just take those old records off the shelf. Nobody care about nobody else. He's got a little white submarine. I'm talking about rock and roll. (laughs) Well, Amanda, I can't thank you enough for bearing your lyrical soul here on I Was There Too. Uh, You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And to everyone listening, you're welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Marty. Love you, Marty. Love you. I was their tune. Well, there you have it. Every song and theme song from that segment, for my money, improved. Thank you, Amanda Lund. I think we'll do that segment again, if not just for for me. It's one of my favorite things. Also, look for her on this show in future episodes. It's a little-known fact that she not only acted in last year's hit summer blockbuster Goosebumps, but she served as a writer on this year's hit summer blockbuster Neighbors 2. But even more interestingly, she was involved in the making of Alvin and the Chipmunks' The Squeakquel, as well as the Squeakquel to the latest Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And uh, I look forward to discussing some of those experiences because they're sometimes strange and fun. My name's Matt Gorley, but I've already covered that. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, basically anywhere under that name. If you can connect me to a guest for this show, please email me at IWasThere2Pod at gmail.com. And like today's interview, if you can do that, you can sit in on that interview as long as the guest is okay with it. Thank you for listening, and thank you for seeing me next time here on I Was There Too. I am Matt Gorley. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.